Please remain standing for the gospel lesson from the Apostle John, chapter 10, beginning at verse 11 through verse 18. Hear now the gospel of the Lord. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The hired hand is not the shepherd who owns the sheep. So when he sees the wolf coming, he abandons the sheep and runs away. Then the wolf attacks the flock and scatters it. The man runs away because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep and my sheep know me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father. And I lay down my life for the sheep. I have other sheep that are not of the sheep pen. I must bring them also. They too will listen to my voice. And there shall be one flock and one shepherd. The reason my father loves me is that I lay down my life only to take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. This command I received from my father. The word of the Lord. Please be seated. Last week, we looked at the first portion of this discourse of Jesus in John chapter 10 on the Good Shepherd. And it'll be important as we continue today to recall the background. We saw that Yahweh, the God of Israel, says that He is Israel's shepherd king. And thus the kings of Israel, the royal line, after the pattern of David, are to be and are called shepherds of the people. And last week we also mentioned this indictment of the false shepherds, the false leaders in Israel. It's a long, stinging indictment in the prophet Ezekiel in chapter 34. And we saw that these Davidic rulers have exploited the sheep. And that Yahweh says, I'm going to remove these worthless shepherds. I'm going to remove them from office, and I am going to rescue my sheep. He personally remains their shepherd. And yet, in that context, he promises to appoint a true Davidic king over them to shepherd them faithfully. The text there in Ezekiel says this, I will appoint one shepherd over them, and he shall feed them. My servant David, I the Lord will be their God, and my servant David, a prince among them. And so all of this Old Testament background converges in the glorious person of Christ. He is Yahweh incarnate, and at the same time the promised Davidic offspring. And as such, as God and man, he's the promised shepherd king of the people of God. And so this metaphor of Jesus as the good shepherd is not a, you know, flighty, harmless, little children's Sunday school ditty. It comes out of the fiery furnace of the prophets of Israel, the exilic prophets like Ezekiel. And it comes as fulfillment of their word six centuries before and a fulfillment of the Davidic kingship as well. This is at the heart of the messianic expectation of the Old Testament. 
that Yahweh himself would shepherd his people as the Davidic ruler. And so we'll make three points today. Three points. The good shepherd, the other sheep, and the command of the Father. The good shepherd, the other sheep, and the command of the Father. First, then, the good shepherd. Verse 11 of our text from from John 10, and again in verse 14, Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. Now, this is another one of these powerful I am statements. Remember the Lord describes His own being and existence all the way back in Exodus. It says, I am who I am. And so this statement, giving all that we just said about Yahweh Himself being the shepherd, this statement implies the divinity of Jesus. Make no mistake about it, Jesus is claiming to be Yahweh when He stands in the midst of these Jewish leaders, these false shepherds, and says, I am the Good Shepherd. And He is the Good Shepherd. The the goodness of God is the background for all of these promises. It's the background for the bounty and the giftedness to us of creation itself. It's what sustains us. It's what guides His providence. It's what commits God to restore the creation, to reconcile creatures to Himself, to perfect and to sanctify them and bring them to His end. This flows from His unstinted goodness. This is why evil is such an acute problem. It's a problem precisely because God is good. Because He's turned Himself to the creation and bestowed goodness on it. And that's why it seems so stark and dissonant to us. In a random random universe, evil is just another thing that happens. Right? The flowers, the holocaust, the hangnail, they're all the same thing. It's It's only in our sense of goodness and the beauty and the bounty that evil becomes a problem. When Jesus says, I'm the good shepherd, He's saying, I'm the incarnation of the God of Israel's intrinsic goodness. I'm morally upright. I am sound. He's full of integrity. The overflowing goodness of God appears in space and time. And what it looks like is Jesus Christ. Goodness is not an abstraction. I mean, you can try and get at it through Plato or Aristotle or someone else. But you're going to get shadows and light. Jesus is the good shepherd. But the word for good here can also mean beautiful. And that note is present here. The good shepherd, the the word good and good shepherd is an aesthetic word. It's a word about seeing. The point is that Jesus' goodness is admirable goodness. It's attractive goodness. I am the beautiful shepherd. William Temple makes this point that our vocation, our calling is to practice virtue 
so that men are one to it. And he says that it's quite possible to be morally upright in a repulsive manner. Right? Who doesn't know morally upright people whose virtue isn't repulsive? It isn't winsome, and it isn't attractive. In fact, this is a particular danger of people who purport to be morally upright. They lack beauty or winsomeness. It's hard, if not impossible, for us to be genuinely righteous without being self-righteous. The ground under your feet here is really tricky, slippery ground. It's hard for us to be discerning, penetrating, without being harsh and critical. It's hard for us to be pure without being naive. Or to be innocent without being proud or separatist. Our goodness is easily deformed. Such is the human condition. Our goodness often lacks beauty. And then we turn to this character set before us by Galilean peasants in the four Gospels. There is in this one, in Jesus' character in life, to anyone who wants to spend some time with him. I often tell skeptics or unbelieving friends that have difficulties, you know, philosophical problems, intellectual problems, I say, look, do this. Just, spend some, just encounter the Jesus of the Gospels. Now just deal with him for a while. We can keep talking. But, you, but you, you need to deal with him and clear away any you know, preconceptions or distortions you might have about this one. I know this was my own experience as a young man. In the Gospels, we encounter a life that has a kind of radiant nobility. Something utterly other. Unique, undefiled, luminous, compelling. And something that you won't capture if you just quickly skate over the word good. In I am the good shepherd. He is the lovely shepherd, the fair shepherd, the noble shepherd, the worthy shepherd, the unmeasured, unstained goodness of God in human form. And what this shepherd does, there are many things, of course, a good shepherd does for his flock, but Jesus lays the emphasis immediately on this in the text. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. His life is given for yours. If you were here last week, you remember I told the story about the Arab shepherd who said, I am the door. And when asked what that meant, he said, I lay down in the opening of the sheepfold. No sheep goes out except across my body and no wolf comes in except across my body. So to be the door... To be the good shepherd is to be the one who lays his body out for the sheep. And so we have to restructure all these abstract notions of goodness in a twisted, alienated, death-pervaded creation. Goodness takes the form of whatever it's going to take to restore that creation. And that form 
is self-giving love unto death. And yet, now remember, Palestinian shepherds, they did not intentionally, they did not intentionally die for their sheep. They intended to live for their sheep. Because the death of the shepherd, that would be a total disaster for the sheep. And so Jesus is differentiating himself here, even as he uses the analogy. He's differentiating himself from human shepherds. Good human shepherds. Because he says, look, for me, as a shepherd, the principal thing, the expected thing, the first thing, the necessary thing, is that I give my life for the sheep. And that's no disaster for the sheep. That's the act which liberates and saves the sheep. And this goes far beyond or we might say it fills the vision out of what was written in Ezekiel centuries before. I mean, Ezekiel said Yahweh is going to provide a servant, a shepherd, from the Davidic line, who's going to gather and restore the sheep. And here, in this dialogue, we begin to see the price that will have to be paid to do this. It means the violent death of the God-man, the good and the beautiful shepherd. And in all of this, Jesus goes on and says, this makes him different than a, a hireling or a hired hand. He tells us there in the text in verses 12 and 13, a hireling is one who is not the shepherd. One who's paid to act in his place. He says he doesn't own the sheep. And because he doesn't own the sheep... He's like a renter living in your house, right? You can't expect him to take care of it. He doesn't own the sheep. He flees when a wolf comes and the, the flock is scattered. It's the sign, basically, Jesus says, of a false shepherd that he flees in the face of conflict and opposition. You know, in the, in the Jewish oral law, in the, in the Mishnah, a Jewish recording of the oral law, the responsibilities for a hired shepherd are actually laid out. And it says there that if one wolf comes, the hired shepherd is required to defend the sheep. But if two wolves come, that counts as an unavoidable accident. He's not required to defend the sheep. And Jesus may have this in mind here. But his point is, look, I defend the sheep at all costs under all circumstances. I never cut and run. This goodness is costly goodness. Bloody, crucified goodness. He owns the sheep. And that means He owns you. And that means He is responsible for you. This is a hard thing for even Calvinists to get. You are not ultimately responsible for you, for your spirituality, or for your salvation. This is good, liberating news. Somebody else owns you. And this is what the Heidelberg Catechism says is our only comfort in life and in death. That we are not our own. We are not our own. It's a burden you can't bear to be your own. 
but we belong to another, to our faithful Savior, our Good Shepherd, who gave himself for the sheep. And in addition, then, to laying down his life, we see in verse 14, he knows his sheep, he says, and his sheep know him. Now, in this context, knowledge is virtually equivalent to love. Uh, 1 Corinthians 8 says, If anyone loves God, he is known by God. You can see the words are interchangeable in this context. There's a mutual, loving, intimate knowledge between Jesus and his sheep. Even as he says in verse 15, The Father knows me and I know the Father. This is really an astonishing statement. Our knowledge of Jesus and his knowledge of us is like a dim picture of the intimacy he has with his Father, between the Father and the Son in the Holy Trinity. And this is, again, this is not just a highfalutin point of theology. This means in this context that it is no more possible for Jesus to be oblivious of you than for the Father to reject or neglect or forget the Son. That's Jesus' point. He roots His knowledge that He has of you and your knowledge that that you have of Him in His relationship to the Father. It is not possible for Jesus to be oblivious or to neglect His sheep. He is the owner of His sheep. And so this exhaustive Tender knowledge that Jesus has of you personally should be a cause of great comfort. He knows you fully, and in response, you know him. That's the good shepherd. The second point here is the other sheep. The other sheep. So you see this in verse 16. And there we read, I have other sheep which are not of this sheep pen or, or this sheep fold. I must bring them also. They too will listen to my voice. Now here we have to recall the the context in John's Gospel. Jesus is in the midst of a conflict with the Jewish leaders who he's essentially accused of being false shepherds. They've excommunicated the blind man in chapter 9. But the blind man is a true sheep of Jesus. He has heard his voice. The Jewish remnant did not hear the voice of strangers. They followed Jesus. And so here in verse 16, when he says, I have other sheep which are not of this fold, he is referring to you and me. You are in the Bible right here, at least generally speaking, because this is a reference to the ingathering of the Gentiles. This is Jesus saying to the leaders of Israel, you cannot steal my sheep. They will hear my voice here in in the midst of Israel. But I have other sheep. I have sheep to the ends of the earth, and I will bring them. So the death of the shepherd here actually paves the way for gathering those outside the borders of Israel. Jesus is here speaking of the creation of the church. The one new man, the new humanity that's neither Jew nor Gentile but the body of Christ. Notice the electing mercy of God on view in this text. Other sheep, Jesus says, I have. 
They are already Jesus' sheep. He has them, even though they don't know it yet. This evokes the words of the hymn we sang this morning. Come thou fount of every blessing. Jesus sought me when a stranger, wandering from the fold of God, he to rescue me from danger interposed his precious blood. You are here today because Jesus is this good shepherd, according to this prophetic word, who has sought out other sheep outside of Israel. Look at the middle of verse 16. I must bring them. I must bring them, you and I, also. This is a shepherd under compulsion, he says. I must. He's under compulsion to gather every last sheep that the Father has given him. His confidence here is remarkable. Notice the conclusion of verse 16. And they will listen to my voice. Their destiny is secure. He already has them. He must bring them. They will listen. This is because he's the owner of the sheep. And he takes responsibility for the flock. This is an extraordinary shepherd who as the God of Israel, Yahweh incarnate, does what Yahweh said he would do in Ezekiel 34. He owns, he elects, he calls, he gathers his sheep from the ends of the earth. He has not resigned this ministry. He has not said, you know, I'm going on vacation. I would like all the pastors to take care of this for me for a while. Yes, he has under shepherds. Yes, he works through human means. But he is the risen one who lives. He still speaks. He's still the electing God. He still calls and he still shepherds. And if that's not true, then don't come here. You know, go to the Kiwanis Club or something. So here we have the direct fulfillment. The direct fulfillment of the promise in Ezekiel 34, verse 23. I will establish one shepherd over them, and he shall feed them, my servant David. Now remember, when Ezekiel writes this, David is long dead. He's looking forward to a greater David. A messianic shepherd king who not only owns and calls, but gathers and unifies the sheep into one body. Notice... One shepherd, one flock. Jesus and his living pastoral ministry. Another way to say this text is, I am the good pastor. That is what guarantees the unity of the flock. Right? Take all the ecumenical gatherings of all the theologians and pastors in all the nations for the last 150 years, Fine. It's a mixed bag. Believe me, I've read these documents. But the, the ground of the church's unity is Jesus' own existence. Right? All, all sheep, those for whom he has died, who hear his voice, are united to him and they constitute one flock. And so whatever we might want to say about this unhappy state of all the divisions in Christendom, in the church, we ought to 
not lose sight of the fact that they in no way eliminate the basic unity between the shepherd and his flock. They might obscure it. They might damage it. They might hide it from view. They don't destroy it. There's one body, one Lord, one shepherd, one flock. And so the third point then, that's the other sheep. Our third point then is the command of the Father. The command of the Father. Verse 17. This is really an astonishing statement. Um, You can see that the love that the Father has for the Son actually has the Son's death and resurrection in view as its cause. Get these words of Jesus. The reason my Father loves me is that I lay down my life to take it up again. I mean, this is a ravishing thing. The Father loves the Son because the Son loves us and lays His life down for us. And so, the love that the Father has for His Son from all eternity rests at least in part on the Son's eternal willingness to die and rise and come on our behalf. This is really quite remarkable. This is what we mean when we say the love that exists in the Holy Trinity is a love which has decided that it will not exist without us. God loves us with the very love with which He loves Himself. Notice the beginning of verse 18. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. A good human shepherd might die accidentally. Jesus doesn't die by accident. He's not a helpless victim of the Romans or the Jews or of all these political machinations. Note the, uh, the, the sovereign freedom. This majestic serenity in the words, no one takes it from me. You might not think that if you just read Matthew, Mark, and Luke and just read the account of the passion and the arrest and the, and the scourging and the crucifixion. Jesus, no one takes it from me. Whatever Jesus does in the weakness of Calvary is nonetheless an act of sovereign authority. It's remarkable, I think, to see the conduct of Jesus during his arrest and trial. During his passion and death, he's walking through this sea of wickedness, this show trial, this injustice, this chaos and darkness, and he walks through it with this undisturbed calm of the one who is Lord. He tells Judas, whatever you must do, do what you must do, do it quickly. And he turns to Peter and says, put up your sword. I could call for legions of angels if I need to. He tells the high priest, why do you strike me? You have no warrant to strike me. He looks at Pilate, the Roman underling, and says, you have no authority over me except to be given to you from above. This one is no victim of powers beyond his control. This one lays down his life at his time and in his way and in accordance with his father's command. He divests himself of his life. No one takes it from him. 
Remember a few weeks ago, I, I said that Luther said that a, the Christian, a Christian person is, is the most free Lord of all and at the same time, the most dutiful servant of all. Well, here Jesus is the image of what a Christian is called to be. He is the most free Lord of all. And he exercises that freedom in the form of suffering and dying as a servant for his sheep. Look at the middle of verse 18. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. The divine authority acts both in the death and in the resurrection. The act of the good shepherd laying down his life is every bit as much an act of power and authority as is the resurrection. And so all of this then, to gather this together, all of this, the good shepherd's freely laying down his life for the sheep that he knows, his taking it up again in the resurrection, and his having and calling and bringing other sheep from the ends of the earth, his gathering them into one flock. All of this, Jesus says, I do in verse 18 because I received a command from my Father. His whole life then, from conception to ascension, is one long, unswerving obedience to the Father's command. And thus, the Jesus on display in this text is indeed the beautiful shepherd who has drawn us to himself with the cords of everlasting love. And he who died for you, who owns you, who has called you, who has sought you, he will keep you. Faith gets white-knuckled at times. But as we'll see next week, our hands are not the only hands in the equation. So if He loved us when we were enemies, how much more will we be saved by His life? All right, ours is to respond with yet another verse from uh, Come Thou Font of Every Blessing, which reminds us of our sheep-like natures. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart. Take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. So let us love and follow him who has loved us to the uttermost and who owns us, who has called us, who has gathered us. We are the other sheep into this fold, laying down his life, taking it back up according to the command of his Father. Amen.